Today's episode of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall discusses slave-master relationships and aspects of the fetish community, which may be unsettling for some listeners. We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness this week is Slave Phil, who is a podcaster and blogger at Master Slave Lifestyle. Away from podcasting and blogging, he is a business and transformational coach in industry. I've known Phil since I moved to Berlin three years ago. We belong to the same meditation group. Chatting afterwards, he told me he was a slave. I thought, wow, Berlin really is a different place. I've invited him onto The Meaningful Life because listening to his podcast interviews with men in the master-slave world, I thought there were things everyone could learn. Sometimes it takes difference to see what's under your own nose. So, Phil, welcome to The Meaningful Life. Thank you very much for being my witness. My pleasure. How old were you when you first decided you were a slave? I think I was 18, so it was very young. But I would say that I had these feelings and stuff from when I was four years old. But it was only when I was 18, I had access to something called the internet. I managed to realize that there were words and stuff to put to some of these things I was thinking and feeling. So you say you had these feelings from four years old. What sort of feelings? To be dominated, to be controlled by someone. And how does that feel at such a young age? Well, it's not something you really understand. It's almost like play. You know, it's only with the benefit of hindsight that I can look back and understand it. Oh, I see. So this would be sort of games you play, like not doctors and nurses, but that sort of idea in those you'd want to be in a role where you would be captured or tied up like cowboys and Indians. Yeah. So do you think this is something that's actually deep inside you? Is that what you're saying? Yes, I would say for me that it's part of my soul. You know, for other people, you know, it's more an aspect of themselves or it's something that they want to play at for a short period of time. But I found for me it's something much deeper and it's, you know, a very deep core part of myself. So when you say you identify yourself as a slave, what does that actually mean to you? So for me, it's someone that wants to serve someone else. So how I'm at my happiest or how I'm in my flow is when I'm actually kind of serving another man. And this can be in many different ways. So it can be sexually, but it can also be through cooking for them, giving them a massage. There's all sorts of ways that you can serve. And as part of that, say, service, I want to be controlled and shaped by that person. And I've also found that I'm normally at my best when I'm doing something for someone else or doing it to make the other person happy. So give me some examples about um, how you've been transformed by one of your masters. So a very simple one is that I've always been very into bodybuilding. But when I've had a master, that's when my bodybuilding has been the most successful. And it's this strange thing that they've just said, I want you to keep on doing that. 
And yet knowing that is something that's made it much easier to do it. Um, when I don't have a master, I actually find it much harder to do it, much harder to have the discipline. And in what other ways have they transformed you? I think one of the other things is encouraging me with, let's say, certain hobbies. So I like writing, you know, so I had one master that very much encouraged me to write more. And um, I had another person that encouraged me to cook more. You know, and then there's been kind of things like, oh, it'd be really good if you could massage me. So then I've learned to massage. So let's say more interests and hobbies have come about. Sometimes they've seen that I like to do it and they encourage me to do it more. But sometimes it's to do something that will make their life easier and better as well, such as massaging. And why would you want to be controlled and told what to do? Because that sounds... <laughs> It sounds a bit controlling, the way I can put it. <laughs> yes, it, it's one of these very weird things that we live in a society where it's that we should not be controlled, that we should all be equal. And yet there is this thing that sometimes some of us do want to be controlled by someone else. And part of this is, let's say, letting go of responsibility because you're going to be told what to do or what to focus on. You don't have to worry about that yourself. So there can be a lot of freedom in it. There's a lot of freedom in, let's say, letting go of responsibility. Of course, the cost of that is if you want to do something and the other person who's controlling you doesn't, then you don't do it. So you do get this freedom, but there is also this cost as well. And for certain people, that cost of losing control can feel like a horrible burden. You know, that you can feel this weight on your shoulders because you have no power. Whereas, you know, for someone like me, it's taking the weight off in a certain way to allow me to thrive in another way. And I don't know why, but psychologically, I'm just wired in a way that I prefer that compared to something which more mainstream society would like. Now, I could imagine at 18 to be sort of told what to do and guided, and I can imagine there'd be a certain amount of mentoring. I think that would be really rather good. I'm aware that you're now in your 40s. I wonder if it's actually different being in your 40s and being controlled from when you're 18. Uh, yes. Like, I think, especially for me, as I try and learn from all of my experiences, both good and bad. So I've had a lot of learning or wisdom on them the way, and that's changed me as a person. And so as you grow older, you become more aware of what it is you're looking for, who you are as a person. So, for example, I'm now very aware of what my values are, what my beliefs are. And if I'm looking for someone else, I need to find someone that has a similar value and belief system. Of course, when I'm 18, I don't even really know what values are or even really use the word. So that's not something that I'm going to be concerned about. I think it's also over time I've realized how much it is a deep part of myself. So the sort of relationship I'm looking for has also changed from being something which is more about play, you know, being with someone for a few hours on a weekend, if I'm lucky the entire weekend, to something that I want as a full-time lifestyle. Again, that's part of the learnings that I've had through life, through the experiences I've had that have helped me to understand myself more. And then through understanding myself more, what is it I'm really looking for in someone? I think people can begin to see that there's quite a lot of parallels there, because I think if you're looking for a relationship and we're going to just use the word normal, hopefully I'm not going to be using it in a pejorative kind of way. But 
in every kind of relationship, you need to think about what it is you actually want and what you can offer. So I don't think there's any difference, really. What do you think between a master-slave relationship and a, a general relationship of actually having to know what you want? I think on that count, it's very similar. If we say more mainstream relationships, you know that it can be easier, I think, to just find someone because that's what everyone's looking for. If you're looking for something that's different, it can be anything else. And that is infinite combinations of infinite varieties. What do you actually choose from that? And then it is more important to really understand what is it that I need? What am I looking for in order to find the other person? Let's try and sort of get a, a real picture of what it's like on a day-to-day -day basis. When you have actually been in a master-slave relationship and you've been controlled, how would it look to us if we were looking through the window? Would it look different? I think it really depends which window you're looking through at which time. <laughs> well, let's, so, uh, let's, start, let's start with the, the living room then. <laughs> let's say just kind of waking up and stuff. It could be very normal. You're getting ready for work. There might be one person that's preparing or cooking the breakfast and someone else is more relaxing. So you wouldn't really notice much difference in, let's say, the actions and behaviors compared to a traditional husband and life. So it might be that the one person is naked or in chains while they are doing that. It could be that, you know, when they go to eat, the one person sitting on the floor and the other person sitting at a table. What's it like sitting on the floor to eat? Well, it's a place that you get used to or you want to be there. And I, I should kind of say that this really depends. I'm not talking about all master-slave relationships. I'm just talking about one of mine. And it might be the case that both of them are sitting at a table. In some lucky situations, someone might be actually eating from a dog bowl. You know, it very much depends on what's going on with the relationship and how they want to manifest that control. You know, for me, when I'm normally sitting on the floor or eating from the floor, it's a very normal thing. And when I say normal, it's like something is normal inside me to do that. It feels like my place, it feels home to kind of put it into a concept. Would you be doing this all the time? Or if you went around to visit your mother, would you still be sitting on the floor or would the rules be changed in different circumstances? Uh, yeah, the rules would change. So, for instance, going to your parents or to your family, of course, you would be normal. You know, you would sit on the sofa and stuff. And the same as if you were going to go into work as well. No one would really know any difference. If you, let's say you're a master-slave couple and you were out and just having a meal in a restaurant, you probably wouldn't notice any difference. But there'd probably be some subtle hints there. Does the one person sit down before the other? Does one person make the orders and the other person does not? Does one person always make sure the other person's glass is full? These are simple, very subtle ways that that power imbalance can still be there in a normal setting, but most people will have no idea what's going on or even notice it. Am I understanding this rightly? For you, the power imbalance is actually something not just satisfying in a sexual sense, but satisfying in a spiritual or even emotional sense as well? I'd say both of them. It's definitely something that feeds me on an emotional. And for me, I also see it as a very spiritual thing as well. 
on my website, masterslavelifestyle.com, there's actually a section on spirituality and how I kind of found there's this link between this more spiritual part of myself and this kind of need to serve and this energy that can exist between a master and slave. You know, the words spiritual, it's something more than the sum of its parts. So tell me more about this spiritual link. For me, the way that I see the world is around energy. The emotions we have are energies within the body. The thoughts we have are often driven by the emotions and energy we have. And then the connections we have with each other are all about connection. And this is an energy. And if you're an empathic person like I am, you can often sense it, even if you're not aware that you're sensing it. And now when I talk about a spiritual kind of side, it's sort of being aware of your energy, being aware of the connection with someone else. And when I am slave, when I'm in that place and I'm with someone that I really connect with, the energy and the connection with myself is incredible. And that master, the energy and connection they have is incredible for them. But then the energy between us, this almost visceral kind of thing that's going between the two people, that is something that's so strong and it kind of feeds between the one person and the other and it kind of grows. And it's like bringing these two people together that have this connection in this way. You get something that is bigger than what either person on their own could actually create. I hope that makes sense. No, it sounds absolutely fascinating. So do you need to effectively come out twice? First of all, you have to tell people that you're a gay man, and then you have to tell them that you're a slave. I think that's true of a lot of people that, let's say, are into fetish. So not just master-slave, but any sort of fetish that there can be two comings out. There's the coming out because of my sexuality as a gay man, but then there's the coming out of embracing the fetish, or in my case, being a slave. And I think a lot of people find themselves going through that second coming out. And even straight people can find themselves going through, let's say, a fetish coming out to embrace something that they might have felt shame or wanted to hide. What do we mean by fetish? Just to give me some examples of fetishes that might be more than just something you do in the bedroom. So fetish is a very long list, but you know it can be something, let's say, that's kinky. So perhaps you want to be tied up and you have sex. Perhaps it's some sort of role play. I think you mentioned nurses and doctors. Perhaps it's something that you want to wear. You know, So some people have a fetish for a certain outfit and that can be leather. It can be rubber. There's like one sub part of the gay scene, which is about high vis kind of wear that can obstruction people kind of wear and stuff. So it can literally be anything, you know, it's often something that people feel a little turned on about, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, but it often is. I live in the centre of the gay district in Berlin, and I used to live in a very respectable square where mothers and children would sit on the lawn having picnics, and then suddenly you would see people dressed as horses, and then there would be jockeys. Normally the jockeys tended to be women in very sort of tight jodhpurs, and there would be, I assume, a man. And I don't know because you couldn't actually see them because they were entirely in a horse's costume. I never realised that people wanted to be horses, for example, but they do and they parade around the streets of, of Berlin. 
I don't know. I should imagine that not everybody wants their friends to know that they like to dress up as a horse at the weekend. Yeah, and this kind of depends on where you live, who you know. What I think is important for a lot of people is to understand who or what is your authentic self. It's going back to the question, who are you? And having people that allow that to be okay. Now, of course, when I came out when I was 18, I kept my fetish or the fact that I wanted to be a slave very hidden. You know, there was one part of me that did that. And then there was the other part of me that was more mainstream. But as time went on and as I started to know myself better, I've cultivated friendships and found a way that I can be much more my authentic self. Now, I'm probably not going to walk into work wearing a horse's head or something, unless I want to deliberately scare my team. <laughs> you know. So, so, so there are limits, but the way that I dress at work is an expression of my authentic self as a fetish person without it being offensive to anyone at work. This seems like something that all of us could learn from because there are parts of ourselves that are important, but they're not necessarily in integrated in our mainstream version of ourselves. So how did you get to the point where you just meet me in a meditation group and you just casually mention that you're a slave? How did you actually get from it being a secret to something that you'd mentioned in a meditation group, which is a obviously not a sexual kind of place? Part of it is let's say that I have gone through some bad experiences, you know, through doing this lifestyle and I've actually needed to reach out to friends and ask for help, you know, and that was one thing that allowed me to be a bit more open, you know, because if I'm going to burst out crying, I need to say why. But on a more positive side, I think it's over time, my confidence has increased. You know, I understand who I am and I don't feel that I should have to hide that. Now, I just want to give a caveat here that if you are someone that has this side and you want to keep it hidden and you're perfectly happy with that, then keep on doing it. it. Just because I have wanted to do this doesn't mean that this is the right approach. But for me, I found it quite liberating to, let's say, start to knock down some of the walls between my different aspects to have it as just me. Mm. And for me, that allows me to navigate through life without having to constantly figuring out who am I in this point? What do I project in this point? It's just me. I mean, I was incredibly impressed by your honesty. And I suppose it helped me get to know you very quickly because you were being very honest and open. And that encourages a friendship, doesn't it? Very much. I mean, it, it is strange. I think when you're able to be much more open about certain things, people do respond well to that openness. And it's strange, let's say at work, I'm, I won't be saying that I'm a slave, but I'm very open about other parts of myself, which allow people to then also be open with me. So it does give this kind of balance between the two relationships. So give me an example of some other things that you you'd mention at work that you perhaps wouldn't have mentioned if you hadn't have developed this bigger honesty? Like one of the really big things I think is around mental health. You know that I've had a depression a couple of times. I'm six foot three. I'm a bodybuilder. I have tattoos. I have piercings. When people see me, they see a certain thing. And then I have a very senior role at organizations. So people see me being in charge and me being open about mental health 
health issues allows everyone beneath me and everyone who sees me to also be open about it, that it is okay. It does not have to be hidden. And talking about, let's say, power, you know, we all have this power sometimes that because of the position we're in or who we are or what we look like, we can enable other people to also be open and to discuss things because we are able to do it and become closer to that more authentic self of ourselves. And I can begin to see you're probably more aware of power than I am and the other people in the meditation group would be. And so therefore, being more aware helps you facilitate other people to understand their power, I suppose, in the workplace. Am I getting that right or not? Yeah, I mean, I think just understanding your power full stop is one of the most powerful things any person can do. You know, that we all have power and some of us, like myself, might want to choose to give up this power or some of this power to someone else. But we all have this power, but we often are not conscious of it, but not aware of it. And the moment we become aware of it, we can make different decisions. And one of the examples is choosing that power, choosing our position of power to enable other things to happen. You know, in the case I give at work to enable other people to be open about their mental health, that they don't have to hide away from it. Now, if you're going to give up control to somebody else on the subject of mental health, one would sort of hope their mental health was good. So how do you choose a master? Because you're making a very big choice. This is not just somebody you're in a relationship with. This is somebody who's going to have control over your life. So I think one of the key things is that it should never be a binary thing. It's not yes or no. You want to build trust slowly over time. There can be more unsavory characters on the scene that say you must make one decision, but that's not something that's actually true. Instead, you want to build a relationship slowly, give up your power slowly, and only when that person is worthy of that power and that you trust them with it. So for instance, with my last master, I actually met him once and then a year later we met again. And it was that second time when we really kind of connected and I wanted to go further. And then there was another six to nine months of me slowly building up trust and giving more power to him. And for me to go a bit more in and to that trust, it's very easy for people to say things, but it's in the actions. It's in what they do that defines them as a person. So it's what they say and what they do. And if it's slightly different, what does that tell you? And often people's actions and behaviors tell you far more of them as a person than what they like to say about themselves. So it's kind of looking for the behaviors, the actions, what does someone do? I'm sort of thinking about mainstream relationships and we do give up power to something that we call love and we sort of let love wash over us. And in a sense, because we love somebody, we do give up a lot of our own power and control over this. So the sort of things you're saying, although we've got a very different framework around it, master and slave, there seems to be quite a lot of similarities between mainstream and this alternative lifestyle. What similarities do you see between going into a master-slave relationship and going into a mainstream relationship? Well, with some of the interviews that I've done, there is actually some things which I think are really important, which are probably what any relationship expert would probably talk about. And part of it's communication. 
you know, understanding each other, being able to hear what each other is saying, to build up that trust, to have the ability to communicate without judgment or shame. And when someone is triggered, being able to talk about this in a way which allows people to kind of understand each other, to kind of respect each other's positions. It's, it's essentially emotional intelligence-ism what I'm talking about here. And I think that's one of the main things that people need in any relationship. One of the things I thought was very different listening to your interviews was that there are very clear rules in a master-slave relationship. They might even be written down, whereas in regular mainstream relationship, the rules are sort of there, but because they've been handed down through the generations, they're more invisible. Would you agree with that difference? Yes, very much so. I mean, it's worth saying that so master slave relationships, you might not have this idea of a contract or walls that are there, but in others, there is this kind of what are the expectations of you as a person? What is the expectations of me? So the master and slave are both talking about what it is they're going to do and what needs they should be fulfilling for each other. And these could quite easily be written down in a contract. Exactly. So quite often there is this idea of writing a contract that someone's taking ownership of you, you know, and for a lot of people, I think this is more like a sexual fantasy, you know, you want to sign a contract. So most you don't really care what it's saying because you're giving yourself over to someone. But in actual fact, quite often the way that these are used in successful master-slave relationships is that it is a negotiation of understanding what each party is going to do, how they're going to fulfill the needs of each other. And listening to your interviewers or interviewees, this is an ongoing process. So in one couple, every year, they went back and they renegotiated the contract. Yes. So each year, they will actually spend a few months starting to talk about what do they want to, in the contract next year. You know, And this is a way of them figuring out how they want to configure the relationship. Give me an example of how it might change from one year to the next. So... Uh, it could be, for instance, the example that the one person gave was that they actually wanted to experiment with people outside of their relationship as well, you know, and that was something that both sides spoke about and, and then accepted. Something else that they've done is how much are they, let's say, a normal husband and husband, and how much are they master and slave? And year on year, they've actually changed and adapted that. So at certain points, because of the constraints that life can have, they've gone for something that's more balanced towards the normal, though it's still got that power bit in it. And then they've decided to really go much more to the master-slave bit and focus much more on that. And part of it was that they're both growing a bit older and they want to make the most of using this space while they can, while they're still young enough to actually do that. You know, So they're using these constraints sometimes to figure out where is it we want to go and sometimes using the limitations to say, okay, well, we can't go as far as we want to, so what can we do? Listening to this couple, they had a concept that I thought was absolutely wonderful, which was called porch time. So tell us about porch time. So although you've set up, let's say, your expectations in a contract, 
things can go wrong. You can be triggered. You can get upset over things or something might not work. So the idea of porch time is that either side can call it and then you kind of sit down and speak about the issue and what's going on. And this idea of porch time is almost like you're going outside the house. So you're not, you're on the porch. So you're not in the outside world. You're not in the house. You're in this liminal space between the two and you're stepping out of your relationship, out of your roles. You're able to talk openly and honestly. And what's said on the porch stays on the porch. You don't actually carry resentments about it. And that seemed to me a really wonderful thing to actually do. It's almost like coming into my office. My office hopefully can be a sort of liminal space where you're able to speak more honestly. Yes, that's right. And and I I think the important thing here is that it is a safe space. So someone can say that they feel hurt. Someone can say, this has really kind of done something to me in a way that I didn't like. And the other person can listen to that without judgment or shame. You know, because sometimes it can be very easy for someone to say, well, you did this and it really brought up kind of these feelings, this stuff, and I really don't like it. And that person can say, well, you've already agreed to it. I don't know why you're complaining about it or you're a slave yeah swallow it down your master is telling you to accept it (laughs) exactly or it can be you know someone's like well this is making me really angry so i'm going to blame them for it instead each side is much more compassionately listening and trying to understand each other and it's worth noting that triggers are not rational triggers are irrational by their very nature they do not make sense from a logical kind of side so what you want to do is understand that this comes from a more irrational place but it's still valid and then from that listening and understanding to figure out what the next steps are so what else do you think mainstream couples can learn from master slave couples So I think there is this thing about experimenting and growth, you know, that relationships that have survived, they tend to have this openness to kind of change and try new things. They kind of evolve slowly over time. And when, let's say, relationships fail, it's often because they're fixed and neither person should or can change. And when someone does change, the relationship breaks because it's too brittle. So having this malleability, this kind of openness to play and experiment and try new things to feed it back, how how is it working, you know, and to make new kind of plays and make changes, I think is an incredibly important thing to allow a relationship to evolve. And is the sort of more sexual experimenting, do you think? Because I find with couples who come to see me, often they've changed what they wear, where they go on holiday, what they eat over 20 years together, but they're still sort of having exactly the same sex as when they first came together. And it's not surprising they're bored. Do you think there's more experimenting in a master-slave relationship? Oh, definitely. I mean, the amount of things you can do in a master-slave relationship is incredible. Give us some ideas. What can you do? (laughs) You know, you can have things such as, let's say, ripping. You know, so you've got the idea of using a flogger or a but then all of the sorts of different rips and stuff, there's so many varieties of that and they all have different things. I, for instance, quite like a flugger or what's called a single tail rip when it's used in a very sensual way. But there are other people that would like it more as an impact play where you get lots of pain and almost get overwhelmed with it. I like it more as a sensual connection. We get a sensual connection from a whip. Very much so. Again, if I go back to that metaphor about the energy and the connection, 
pain is energy and someone caressing you with a whip kind of creating pain is an energy that can come out. And for me and for the ones that I choose to kind of play or have a relationship with, there's this huge kind of energy in someone allowing themselves to provide their body for this. And the master gets a huge amount of energy from that as well. And then how the two sides can interact. So, you know, me allowing it, kind of going with it, how I'm reacting, behaving, you know, it, it would be quite common after some ripping for me to, let's say, nuzzle the master's neck and to kind of almost, let's say, worship him, which then encourages him to do more you know so, so there is this very symbiotic way that it works it, it's, it's not just that one person's doing it and hating it normally both sides are quite enjoying it so i think if we were looking through the window at this point and one person is being whipped and the other one is taking it we'd sort of think of the person who was in control with the person with the whip but you've described it as a far more symbiotic thing so who is in control in that particular scene well, in some ways, it should be the master, as long as they are, let's say, um, accepting and working within the slave's limits. The moment someone wants to go outside of those limits, that is when the master should lose control because that's broken something. And this is probably another really important point, you know, that it's not like I go to someone and say, have at it. There is a discussion about what are the limits, what am I willing to accept or not? And if and we're not sure, then there's feedback to figure it out. Now, I could say that I'm in charge because I can say when to stop it. But by me feeding back and saying where I am, how I'm going, or if it's someone that knows me can read me very well, they're able to then decide when to stop or go ahead, you know, and that then keeps it kind of working. But that's why it's symbiotic. It's the communication. It's the understanding of each other. There seems to be an awful lot of talking in master-slave relationships to actually navigate through all of this. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, so I think especially at the start, this kind of feedback, people understanding how each other's feeling, especially the master understanding how the slave's feeling is incredibly important. But as time goes on, you know, normally you can read the other person very well. So then sometimes there's not as much communication needing because you can read and understand that person just from their body language. Of course, for anyone who's a beginner, you should not be doing this. You need to build up the experience of yourself and the other person before you can trust that. But for people who are more experienced and you really start to understand where someone is because you've played or got a very long-term relationship with them in this fashion, you can then start to use your empathy, your ability to read the other person to help drive some of the communication. Okay. So if somebody's listening to this podcast and they're suddenly deciding that they might have a, I don't know, a kinky side in some way, what advice would you give them into how to enter into this world? Because it could be quite frightening, I would imagine. So I would say to look at this like an experiment or a play you know, that you want to have experiences and you want to learn from those experiences. And so you want to find people that are happy to give those experiences and they're happy that you're a beginner. What is important is sometimes to figure out, does this person know what they're doing? So you can ask them, how much experience do you have? But unfortunately, it's only through 
having the experiences that you can start to really understand how experienced someone is or not, which is why I think this more experimental and playful approach is good. I also would like to use the metaphor of, let's say, swimming. It can be very tempting to dive into the deep end, but I would say that you want to start at the shallow end of the pool and walk slowly down to the deep end because if you have an experience you really dislike because you decided to jump into the deep end, you might not want to come back. Whereas taking the other approach, even if you have a bad experience, it won't be that bad. You can take that step back and go, well, do I want to go in a different direction in the pool? We've talked about the positives. What is the dark side to master-slave lifestyle? So I think like in any relationships, there are always bad actors, you know, so you can have people that may want to use it for things which are not ethical. I will come to what I mean for that in a minute. And it's also sometimes that people might not understand what it is they're doing. Either they don't have enough experience. Underneath both of those, I think there's a simple thing, which is, are both sides fulfilling each other's needs? So to use an example, so if we go to a very extreme slave relationship, you might say some of the needs are to be controlled, to have structure, to be told what to do. But you can have a relationship where the master stops doing that. It's like, oh, I don't want that responsibility. I'm tired. Let's give up. But they still want all of the service of the slave. At this point, that relationship's broken because one of the parties has decided that the needs of the other, even if it's the needs of a slave, they don't want to put the effort into fulfilling. So I think it's very important that both people make sure that their needs are being fulfilled. So the final thing is to watch out for, let's say, a narcissist or psychopath personality. A psychopath with a whip is probably not somebody you want to meet. In some ways, the rip bit isn't the issue. It's more the psychological thing that that person could do to someone else. I'm especially thinking about a long-term relationship. This is where what is someone saying and what is someone doing and let that trust build over time is very important because after a while, you can very much see the behaviors of someone who's being manipulative, trying to make you feel bad. If this is an area that, that where people are concerned, there is an article on my website which kind of explains this in more detail. Any other advice, Phil? So if you are interested in doing this, I would say be aware that there are some things you can do, such as a traffic light system. And a traffic light system is that you can say amber if you're reaching a limit. You can say red when it's out of your limit. People also have things such as a safe word. So when you say that safe word, the play should stop. And you can also become aware of things like WAC, which is risk-aware consensual kink. And that's something you can research as well. And these are all ways that you can make the place safer. And if someone doesn't want to do these things, then avoid them. So do you cover the subject of abuse? Because I've heard it said that in the S&M world, there are people who were abused as children, and they're some way purifying the whole experience that was negative in the past by using pain or power dynamics to do sort of drama therapy. What do you think of that idea? Well, I think it's important to note that I'm not a therapist or a psychologist, so I don't feel equipped to really talk about that sort of subject. I think that's 
that's something that people are more knowledgeable about than me. So speak to an expert or somebody in the, the therapy world who has experience of the kink world. Just to say, people can sometimes think, oh my God, how can I speak to a therapist about kink or fetish? It's actually completely fine. Like you send an email or get in touch with them and say, these are some of the subjects I want to talk about. And the therapist will say yes or no at that point, but most of them are going to say yes. In fact, most of them go, oh, this is going to be a bit more interesting than the normal case. So you don't have to worry about that shame. The word to use is, are you kink knowledgeable? So you don't necessarily need them to be experienced in it, but they do need to have a certain basic knowledge about it. Agreed. I can think of an organization that might be able to help, a sort of an umbrella organization. I'll put that in the show notes. So we've sort of talked about your personal world. We haven't really talked about your business world. Do you think you bring some of the slave stuff into coaching? And do you think you bring some of the coaching into being a slave? Oh, definitely. I I mean, the latter one, you know, a lot of stuff on my website all comes from my ability to do workshops, coach, and to look at the world in a certain way. So I would say that what I've done in my work life has definitely helped there. But what's interesting is that I think that A lot of the wisdom that I've picked up on in, let's say, leading this strange but authentic life are things that have really helped me at work. But one of the more interesting things is sometimes looking at issues and challenges with people around the dynamic of power. Power dynamics and work seem to go rather hand in hand, if you ask me. But it's strange you can, let's say, be introducing something And you get all of these complaints and stuff, and you might just want to look at the complaints. You might be looking at what are the patterns or themes, but sometimes it can be worth looking at who is gaining power and who is losing power. And is there a correlation there? And quite often there is. You can also sometimes notice that there are people that very much want to be in charge. And by trying to be in charge all of the time, they lose all power and authority. And the ones that don't treat power like that, who treat power much more carefully, like I have a style of leadership, which is servant leadership, it's surprising how much power people will then give you. What what is servant leadership? Servant leadership is that you're doing leadership in service of your team. So you're essentially trying to help your team to be the best they can be by growing and developing them, getting them to work well as a team and enabling them. You know, I'm not there to tell them what to do. I'm not there to sort out every single issue. I empower them to sort that out. I train them to sort it out. You know, and I I will do this across a department or organizational level as well. And it's very surprising that although I'm essentially taking this service leadership of giving power to other people, I get a lot of authority and credibility and power because of that. So you can be in control and actually not have any power. Very much. You know, and you notice this happen, you know, if if you look around the office and sometimes if you're getting very frustrated, it might be that you've somehow lost the power and it might have been because of how you've behaved or acted. Not always, but it can be the case. So in a moment, we're going to use some of uh, these thoughts and techniques and the knowledge that Slave Phil has put together to answer a letter that somebody has written to me. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter 
Like us on Facebook and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. You're listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall, and I'm talking to Slave Phil from the Master Slave Lifestyle podcast. And one of the advantages of being a supporter to my podcast is you get a whole range of benefits. And one of those benefits is you can write in with something that's concerning you. And myself and my guest, my witness, will talk about it. And here is a letter that I've received. My whole world has fallen apart since my husband left me for another woman. I keep hoping that he will come to his senses, realise he's made this huge mistake and come back. But what if this relationship could be the solution? He might find whatever he's looking for, that blissful life he thinks it is. Why would I know better that he needs to wake up? It's weird that I'm hoping he's miserable. Of course, he might as well move on to the next new life, but he's leaving a life he once loved because it's easier than fixing the old one. Well, maybe it is. What should I do next? Fix my old life or find a new one? And how on earth do I do that when I can't stop thinking about the old one? So what are your thoughts, Phil? For me, one, my heart goes out to her. And I think her reaction is very natural you know, that can be very traumatic when this happens and it's very natural to want to go back. But one of the terrible things about relationships is that only one of you needs to break it and it does lead us to feel like we're powerless and we have no control. And I I think, you know, from a very high level point of view, not knowing any other details about this, you know, one of the central things is there's nothing you can do to change the other person. You know, sort of waiting for an absolution that's never going to come. But it's worth noting that you do have a power and it's a great power. And that's how you react and how you choose to move forward. And it's easy for me to say that, you, you know, we can't just let go of someone. It's hard and triggering. And we think about it a lot. So it's a process, but you can choose which process you want to do. Do you want to choose the person you want to be and become? Or do you want to choose to be someone that's always looking back and wondering, can I make a change or can I do something where that's never going to make any difference because it's in in the past? So how does she gather up her power, which is sort of, I suppose, one of the themes of this podcast? So for, for me, there's sort of two things. So I have this kind of phrase, what you do now will decide the person you will become. Mm, say that again. That's a good, that's a good motto. What you do now will decide the person you will become. And this is not just in the big decisions, but in the small ones as well, such as how do we speak to a person in the supermarket when we're angry and annoyed for nothing to do with that person? You know, and it's strange. We can choose a different path and we don't know where those paths are going to lead. But you can imagine if you're in a situation where you've got to choose the way forward, you could lean into things such as to be curious to learn, to explore, to lean into compassion and love and dealing with other people. Or we could lean into being closed, angry and bitter, and to take out those emotions on other people. Now, we don't know in like a year's time, two years' time or three years' time where we're going to end up, but one's certainly a darker path and one is certainly a brighter path. And I think choosing what you want to do in those moments And being aware that you can choose this sort of darker or this lighter side is very important. 
That now the reason why I use the words to be curious, learn, and explore is often if a relationship's ended and we weren't expecting it, we have no idea what it is we want to do next. So that's why using curiosity, just trying new things can be a very good way to find what it is we actually are going to enjoy. And then we start to focus a bit more on that. So I think the part that I want to pick out of this letter is what do I do when I can't stop thinking about the old life? And what I want to say is twofold. First of all, when you're feeling whatever you're feeling, you accept that feeling. It is actually natural to be angry or to be sad or anxious when you're in a situation like this. So please don't beat yourself up for the feelings. Accept the feelings, but challenge some of the thoughts. Now, what do I mean by challenge the thoughts? So, for example, challenge the thoughts, oh, I did something wrong. Well, what did you do wrong? Is it your fault? I will never feel happy again. You know, how do you know that? So, accept the feelings and challenge the thoughts. So, rather than just letting one thought lead to another thought to another thought, which they become more catastrophic as they go along, challenge some of those thoughts. So that's the first side. The second side is sort of almost to accept in a great depth the fact that you can't stop thinking about this. You know, there's probably a reason why you can't stop thinking about this. And that could be what have I got to learn from this situation? So we're changing the question, why me, into what have I got to learn in this situation? Because it could be that although he was unhappy with the old relationship, there could have been things that you were unhappy about. And you've sort of pushed those to one side while you're sort of saying about all the good things in it. What do you need to do differently in the next phase of your life? The other thing I would say reading this is that I don't think it's easier to move on to a new life than fix the old one. Because when you just move on to a new life, that you can bring all the old problems along with you. You sort of think that it's going to be different this time. But a lot of people dive into this new life without actually really understanding what was wrong in the old life so that they don't actually resolve those issues. And because they don't talk enough about the new life, they just dive in under the cover of love, they end up actually diving into an unknown pool. So it seems like a wonderful world, but actually it's all built on fantasy rather than the sort of talking and depth that you need to have a new relationship, whether it's a mainstream one or a master and slave one. There's an awful lot of talking that needs to be done. And often in these fantasy worlds of affairs, there's not an awful lot of talking done and there's an awful lot of fantasy. So they don't really know what they're diving into. But that takes us back to your husband. And actually, we're not interested in him. We're interested in you. And what are you going to do differently? So thank you very much for that. And I hope that our thoughts have been helpful. Now, Phil, we move on to the most important question of all on this podcast. This is the meaningful life. What makes life meaningful for you? So for me, I think it's the journey itself. We can often kind of think, what is it I want to achieve next? You know, is this a new relationship for me, finding a master? Is it the next promotion? And we focus on that and we get it. And then for a day, week, or maybe a month, 
we celebrate it and then we're on to what's next. Whereas I think what's important is the process of them getting there. I did this thought experiment with myself. So I'm looking for something that's a bit strange and I might never find it. So when let's say I reach 60, 65 and I look back, do I suddenly kind of go, was this a wasted journey trying to find something that is a bit different? And the answer is it's only wasted if I miss the journey itself with all its good bits, bad bits, the things to learn. So it's the actual what you're doing in the current moment. And if you decide a journey like I have to do something a bit different, is it fulfilling enough the journey itself, not just the destination? And is it fulfilling being a slave when you haven't got a master? There's always a bit of me that is a bit empty because I don't have a master. And even if I had a vanilla relationship, a mainstream relationship, that would still be there. But the process that I've gone through to try and find one and what I've learned and how I've changed and the person that I've become because of that, I think that is a life well lived and I have no regrets on that. And I think that is very profound, your comment that the journey itself is meaningful. And we tend to forget that. We see the goals and we think the goals are meaningful, but actually it's the journey because that is in fact where we live. We live in the journey. And where we spend most of our time. And we have to live now rather than in some glorious time in the future. Exactly. Phil, it has been the most fascinating journey, my journey through this uh, podcast to today. Thank you very much. This is the point where most people will be leaving our conversation. But if you have the full Monty access, if you are a member of our supporters club, this is not the end. There's more that we're going to have. There's a whole set of benefits. You'll find out more in a moment. We'll give you all the details. You'll be able to hear Phil talk about what he's learned from talking to me. I'm going to tell you what I've learned from talking to him. And he's going to share three things he knows to be true. But at this point, Phil, I want to say thank you very much for being my witness today on The Meaningful Life. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.